This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back bonjour voici le podcast de la red box je suis matt shawley aujourd'hui sur le podcast zout à l'eau la relation entre la grande bretagne à la france sont très très terribles uh, much like my French accent. But relations between Britain and France are particularly bad at the moment. So we will take a look at how we can try and get us to be les amis again. We'll hear from Peter Ricketts, who was Britain's ambassador to Paris from 2012 to 2016, and Sylvie Berman, who was France's ambassador around the same time, uh, to London from 2014 to 2017. Uh, put it this way, one of them rates the relationship is about three or four out of ten the other things is as bad as anything since Waterloo. Yeah, it's well worth a listen. But first, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. It's Monday, so it must be Libby Rachie. It's Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. Now, Rachel, it, we are experiencing the unusual sensation of Boris Johnson going hard and early on uh, dealing with uh, coronavirus. Uh, facing. How do you feel about this? Well, it's very impressive so far. In marked contrast to last time, they seem to be acting quickly, efficiently, decisively, following the advice of the experts. But I have seen very worrying signs of talk about saving Christmas on the front page of my Times this morning. They're already Downing Street briefing that, you know, Christmas is going to be fine. We're acting now to save Christmas. Where's that effect? And... That's the only thing that worries me is that Boris Johnson is going to be so desperate to make sure that Christmas doesn't go wrong again, um, that he'll put some of the decisions off or make bad decisions when we come towards that. But at least for now, they seem to be uh, acting much more quickly than previously. Uh, Libby, do you think uh, lessons have been learned perhaps over the the last 18 months about how to, to respond to these things? Yes, I think there are plenty of lessons. And also, I think I, I think what's been done so far is actually proportionate. Omicron has not yet been shown to cause serious illness. And it is in the nature of viruses often to be uh, less lethal, but more transmissible. So this might be... <clears throat> a step in that direction. I think the business about masks interests me because 
What they have made a big pig's ear of is not creating exemption markers or certificates so that shops and theatres and train staff and the rest can simply, uh, they can never get sharp with anyone. People just say, well, I'm, I'm exempt, you know, I've got whatever. You know, I, I, a lad the other day in a shop, I asked him why he wasn't wearing a mask and everyone else was. He said, I've got anxiety. Um, and I do think that actually saying what an exemption is rather than these wet announcements saying, please, everybody wear a mask, you know, but please be charitable and kind to those because they may have invisible disabilities. I think we need they, sh they should have realized earlier that if you're ever going to rely on masks, you're going to have to have some quite sharp line uh, between you must wear a mask and no, you don't have to because you're special in some way. Well, yeah, and in fact, um, some of our anti-masking <clears throat> colleagues were helpfully sharing uh, the the page from the government website, which says you don't need uh, any written evidence or, or exemption. And uh, you, all you needed to say was the uh, putting on, wearing or removing a, a face covering will cause you severe distress. And that was basically oh. the excuse that anyone, and clearly <laughs> some people would, you know. British Rail causes me, the railways cause me severe distress really quite often. <laughs> <laughs> but that doesn't suddenly Boris make the train Johnson arrive in Colchester. Boris Johnson seems to have distress quite often when he visits hospitals or, you know, sitting in crowded meetings and things. So actually he does need to start setting an example as well. Uh, aside, the Prime Minister needs to make clear that he is wearing a mask. Um, Tory MPs should make clear that they are setting an example. Which actually, at the past week or two of PMQs, where the Commons has been pretty full, actually most, I mean, I'd say the vast majority of MPs, including Tory MPs, were wearing them. One or two, yeah. On the Tory front bench, there were one or two uh, refused nicks. I think Jacob Rees-Mogg was one of them. But um, uh, most are now, most had actually been wearing them even, even before uh, this came in. But I suppose there is a question, um, Libby, about the, the sort of, why don't you? Why do you have to wear one if you're in a shop, but not in a pub or a restaurant? I mean, I'm, you know, I'd rather go to a pub or a restaurant without wearing one. But it would seem to make sense that uh, the uh, the rule on moving around in pubs and restaurants um, is is you know over a long period of time it would seem to make more sense that you'd, you'd wear a mask there than than popping into yes, boots for two I minutes. I think the crowded pub where everyone's standing up, yes, I think there probably should be a masking rule. It's quite difficult to make these distinctions. But, I mean, the point about hospitality, as they widely call it, is you're going to put something in your mouth. You know, you can't keep whipping <laughs> your mask off to do that. I think the walking around rule was actually quite a sensible one. Um, but uh, maybe, I don't know, I just think that's a very difficult one to enforce. And, and therefore, that's one of the reasons they're probably not doing it. And I suppose um, there's a bit of just psychology going on here, Rachel. The, the 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 habit of taking a mask out with you, putting it on if you're on the train or the bus or popping into a shop, also might make us all slightly alter our own behaviour again. It's just another visual mm. uh, habit-forming reminder that maybe, you know, don't forget to also do your lateral flows. Think about opening the windows if people are coming back. You know, it's it's a, it's it's it may well have a knock-on effect on our other behaviour as well. Definitely. And I, I just I still feel nervous if I in a packed tube train when people aren't wearing masks, to be honest. So I'd be pleased when if more people do. And I think there is that sense of it being polite to other people around you as well as good for yourself, which I think the more people do it and the more the government mm. nudge factor kicks in, uh, the, 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 you know, the more that becomes the public norm. So it's about kind of normalising something as well as legalising it, you know, legislating for it, I think, too.
Yeah, and we'll, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see if it's enough. And like, basically, it's a slight waiting game as we wait to find out how serious the Omicron variant is. Well, Boris Johnson is getting a grip. Is Keir Starmer getting a grip uh. as well? Rumours, <laughs> rumours <laughs> that he's about to embark on a reshuffle because nobody knows who his top team are. Um, go on then. Let's let's play a game with this. Uh, Libby, who's the shadow Home Secretary? I'm not, I'm not getting into this. What I want to talk about is Angela, Angela Rayner. I want to talk about, and I want to talk about Angela Rayner. Let's talk about Angela Rayner because I Go think on, it's then. quite understandable to be frightened of Angela Rayner, uh, given given what happened last time round. What if you're Keir Starmer, you mean? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think I, I think what he's. What's fascinating is that he's he's got exactly the same problem as the Tories have, which is that you you are tempted to put loyalty and like-mindedness um, ahead of actual quality and energy and ability to master a brief uh, and a certain amount of media ability. I mean, some of the best people just don't get brought forward. Or why isn't Yvette Cooper quite important in in the Labour shadow cabinet? I don't get that at all. Um, so I think I think that really that, that that does matter. They've got the same kind of problem as the Tories have: is what kind of people do you bring forward, um, and might they be difficult and dangerous to you? Um, and, and I think uh, Keir, Keir Starmer's you know, he's got a difficult job because uh, you know I, I can't imagine uh, how, how he's going to rearrange it. I think Angela Rayner will still be the deputy leader and sort of head of school and uh, winner of the Mrs Joyful Prize for Raffia work and whatever else he gave her last time. <laughs> Um, uh, the interesting thing, Rachel, is that, that part of the, the reason that Yvette Cooper's not in the shadow cabinet is because she didn't want to be, that she felt she could have more impact, more fun, and, if we're being completely uh, crude about it, she can also earn more money if she's chairing the Home <coughs> Affairs Select Committee than if she was shadow Home Secretary. Well, it's fascinating, isn't it? The, the Select Committee chair positions have become really important now in the Commons in the way they weren't you know, even 10 years ago. So she has got a lot of influence in that position. but And it shows that she doesn't really think that Labour's anywhere near power um, for now. But I think Libby's right. What Keir Starmer's got to do is appoint people who have cut through with the voters. And Angela Rayner, you, you talk about Angela Rayner frightening Keir Starmer, Libby, but also she frightens Boris Johnson. You can see it in his eyes across the dispatch <laughs> box of PMPs. Who is this powerful woman who, you know, isn't quite under my control um and same with people like um we're streeting um the shadow child poverty secretary i think he is at the moment he's got a sort of way of telling a story partly perhaps to do his, his own background he, you know he grew up in a very poor area, uh, family grew up in a council estate tough council estate peter kyle um the shadow schools minister he's got a reading age of eight himself he's so severely dyslexic these people who have fought to get into politics and they have a way, they, they, they cut through. Uh, and also some of those grown-ups, you, you mentioned um, Yvette Cooper, but also people like Hilary Benn, you know, they have mm, a sense yeah. of um, stability and credibility. So he needs people who can cut through to the voters rather than just shore up his position in the party. There's a, there is an issue though, isn't there? If, if his answer to his problems is putting in his shadow cabinet people who were in the Labour cabinet 10 years ago. If, 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 if he really thinks he needs to turn to Yvette, the likes of Yvette Cooper and Hilary Benn, who at various points have, have been in shadow cabinets, made, you know, Yvette Cooper was shadow Home Secretary for 
the entire time, or pretty much the entire time, that Theresa May was Home Secretary, never really laid a glove on her, despite lots of things that went... I'm always a bit... I'm a little bit Yvette Cooper sceptic, I have to say. The other thing that um, you touch on... Uh, like Wes Friedman and Peter Carl are important, yes, sort of these fresh yes, voices. Yes, new generations, um, exactly, yeah. who might make people sit up and take notes. The other thing that you point out about, Rachel, with uh, Wes Streeting, Streeting's current job, Shadow Secretary of State for, for Child Poverty as if we want more child poverty, is that's not a government job that exists. And one of the things that Keir Starmer's done, he's made a bit of a rod for his own back, is he's created all of these shadow jobs which don't have opposing numbers in, in government. So uh, uh, yeah. Angela Rayner's shadow sector state for the future of work, despite also having a shadow work and pension secretary. And so there's actually far more people in the shadow cabinet uh, than he should possibly have. So really, if he, if he wants to tighten it up, he's going to have upset people. He could have... You can basically sack lots of people make, and make no promotions. And the trouble with reshuffles, Libby, is you end up making enemies as well. Yeah. Uh, do, you th- do you think it's time Jess Phillips came roaring up through the ranks? I think she's interesting. Well, she's, she's definitely, definitely someone... She's got that through. thing of... Yeah, mm. she's got that thing of... She, if she pops up on the telly, you sort of pay attention to what she's saying. Yeah. Mm. Um, which, yeah. which, if you're the opposition, is about all you can... Uh, you can hope for, uh, you know, making a bit of noise. Um, Nick Thomas Simmons was the shadow home secretary, Libby. Just so if you're if you're playing that game over, uh, over the, <laughs> the name table. the name fell out of my head. Uh, these things, <laughs> these things remember, do happen. I think, but I that is actually once. one of the big problems. Is a lot of people simply don't know who the shadows are. You know, there, there was a time, you know, in the pendulum years when you sort of Heath and Wilson and all the rest of it and Callahan. Uh, you know, you absolutely, you always knew who the shadows were. I mean, you tend not to know now, which is a big problem. I remember once hosting a, a quiz night in the press gallery, and we had a Labour Party team and a Conservative Party team, and I think a Lib Dem team as well. I think this must have. This is very, either very late Labour on the way out or the Tories coming in. And we, I remember playing a game of Name That Tory Front Bencher with the Tory press office team. And they were hopeless. They basically didn't know any of them, even though they were like pumping out <laughs> press releases about them. Yeah. So, uh, Libby, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. I just want well, to ask you actually, finally, I can, Libby. About, I can remember. Sorry, yeah. I was going to say one one thing. I do remember when I was on the Today programme, we used to, and, and it was the pendulum years again, you know, governments kept changing. You always found the ministers coming in who were in power looked really ill. And when they were shadows, they looked all perky and happy and, and their costumes very happily. <laughs> so it's not a healthy, it's not a healthy job. Uh, just finally, Libby, I wanted to ask you about your, your column today, which I I thought was fascinating because it wasn't something I was completely across. Um, uh, fake holiday lets. It's it's just a bit of a scam. It's it's not widespread. It's widespread in some areas, I think. But basically what happens is owners of holidays, second homes, houses and flats, they use them themselves intermittently, but they register them as small business and say they're holiday lets as if they're running a sort of teeny centre parks. But because uh, they don't earn enough to earn business, to do business rates, they don't pay business rates. And because they've said it's a business, they don't pay council tax either. So they basically pay no local taxes at all and often make very little effort at actually to let them for the 70 or 140 days a year that they should. And um, so just at our local council, and I believe one or two others, have suddenly taken, the government has been promising action on this for ages, but they've taken the law into their own hands. The council saying, OK, you're a business, so you won't get any rubbish collection. You have to pay for commercial rubbish collection. You have no parking spaces, you know, and you are subject to inspection for food safety and fire safety and so on. Um, it's, it's been a sort of a small, niggling, middle-class 
affluent fraud of paying no form of council taxes or business rates at all uh, by this cheat saying you're a business. And it's just about time that, that people, you know, that it was clamped down on. And also, I mean, in areas where there were lots of second homes, um, that could start really hitting, you know, I'm thinking of parts of, sort of Devon, Cornwall, uh, especially maybe in your part of the world as well as Suffolk, that could start really hitting local authorities, missing out on, on income. Oh, it, it, it absolutely is hitting them. I mean, they're, they're making calculations about it. It's, it's really irritating. Um, and uh, the interesting thing is, of course, you're supposed to have it lettable 140 days a year, but actually let at least 70 days a year. Now, that is 10 weeks. And if you think most of these places are summer hotspots, a lot of these owners say, oh, well, basically, you know, what with Christmas, Christmas and Easter, and then we'll obviously we'll have a good long holiday with the children there for a while. They don't really want to let. Some of these places are hardly even advertised, but they just still register them as businesses. It's just basically a scam. Well, it's a scam. I feel like I'm presenting watchdog now. I feel it's a scam I didn't know anything about. I'm glad you brought it to our attention. Debbie Purvis and Wade Sylvester there. And, of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Box. Up next, it's the Entente Discordiale. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now, it is time for this. Zuta laws. Things are bad between Britain and France. Two great allies who are really not singing from the same hymn sheet. <laughs> this is awful. Uh, yeah, it's all gone. Uh, it's all gone very bad in the last uh, few days. I mean, it's, it's fair to say, of course, that Britain and France have not always been the best of friends. Just think of Nelson, Napoleon, and that time that Chris Hope from the Telegraph asked Francois Hollande. Do you think your private life has made France an international joke? <laughs> it was an extraordinary moment that. But now things are bad, really bad. Boris Johnson this morning has been accused by France's Interior Minister, Gérald Damanin, of making a mockery of British-French relations. 
And he's been told he must take responsibility for the migrant crisis following last week's uh, tragedy in which 27 people drowned. It comes after France yesterday rejected Boris Johnson's call for an agreement to return migrants crossing the channel. New polling by YouGov for the Times reveals 25% of Brits blame France for the increased crossings and 18% blame geopolitical instability as opposed to just 10% who blame Boris Johnson. Although having said that, 82% believe the British government is handling the crisis badly. But all this comes after rows over Brexit, fishing rights, the AUKUS defence pact, even the effectiveness of the AstraZeneca vaccine. You've had Boris Johnson pleading with Emmanuel Macron. I just think it's, it's, it's time for some of our dearest friends around the world to, you know, prone and grip uh, about all this uh, and donnez moi un break. Well, a bit uh, dull boy, that. Meanwhile, French Foreign Minister Jean-Yves Le Drian says... Je pense que Monsieur Boris Johnson est un populiste et qu'il utilise tout, euh, tout élément à, à sa portée pour euh, à la fois essayer de se renforcer sur euh, sa, son poids politique euh, au Royaume-Uni, mais aussi euh, essayer de mettre sur la faute de l'autre des difficultés qu'il a en intérieur. Just in case your GCSE French didn't hold up, that's a French minister saying that Boris Johnson is a populist and he uses all the words within his reach to reinforce his policy in the United Kingdom, but he also tries to blame others for the difficulties he faces internally. So, can we ever be les amis again? Well, let's hear from two people who know the relationship better than most. Peter Ricketts, Lord Ricketts, who was Britain's ambassador to Paris from 2012 until 2016. Sylvie Burnham was France's ambassador at the same time to London from 2014 to 2017. How would they rate the relationship between Britain and France from 1 to 10? If 10 is amazing, inseparable, inseparable, insufferable even, and couples honeymooning at the top of the Eiffel Tower... And one is a relationship which is just awful and beyond repair. Let's hear first from Peter Ricketts. Well, I'm afraid we're down at uh, three or four out of ten because I think this is the worst I've known it in 40 years as a diplomat. There have been some bad moments in the past. The Iraq war, we were very badly divided on. But that was a question of judgment uh, on a big issue rather than what we have now, which I think is a collapse of confidence between the two capitals. And perhaps particularly in Paris, although Sylvie can say that more than I can, uh, I think there's been a real loss of confidence in the seriousness of uh, Boris Johnson's government. So we're, we're down in the depths and we have to depend on um, business links, cultural links, uh, links between friends and families to keep things going until government links get better. So three or four, says Peter. Sylvie Berman, how would you rank the relationship between Britain and France out of ten? Yeah, I'm afraid I agree with Peter. It's very bad. And jokingly, I said a few weeks ago that it has never been as bad since Waterloo. So it shows how bad it is. And I think, uh, well, it, it's linked to Brexit, obviously, because uh, uh, we have a government, government we, uh, who is very pro-European and uh, also we want agreements being uh, respected. And uh, that's not necessarily uh, the case. And of course, lots of issues like fisheries and migrations and Northern Ireland protocol uh, give the opportunity of further crisis. But as Peter said, there's a problem of trust uh, uh, and uh, it's uh, very difficult to, to get out of that. And if we look at that list of things which are causing tensions, I mean, Brexit covers a whole load of things under that. You could put uh, tensions over fishing, the Northern Ireland Protocol. You could probably throw into that the 
the migrant uh, crisis uh, the crossings uh, on the channel you, you don't need to go that far back you've also got the AUKUS defense pact where France's way across that Britain went off with America and Australia you had Emmanuel Macron criticizing the effectiveness of the AstraZeneca vaccine um and it, it feels like uh, Peter the 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 both sides latch onto any passing issue to niggle, to wind up, to score points. That's the problem when there's no trust on both sides, that uh, individual issues like the ones you list get blown up. Yes, Brexit is in the background. It unsettled a lot of long-standing relationships between Britain and France. But I think it's more the handling of Brexit and the manner, particularly in which the British government has gone about things, um, which has led Paris to think that they just can't depend on Britain to keep its word, as Sylvie said. Um, The threats to break international law, the constant campaigning, the misrepresenting of what uh, was agreed in conversations between President Macron and Boris Johnson. Um, And it is difficult to build back from that. Um, Of course, UK-French relations have gone up and down over the decades. This will get better. Um, It was only quite a short time ago. I was ambassador in Paris and we had uh, the Queen's state visit in 2014 where things were seeming fantastically close. So um, it is not irreparable, but it needs both sides to dial down the rhetoric, to get back round the table and solve these difficult problems quietly through good diplomacy. Sylvia, I wonder if you think that part of the problem between Boris Johnson and Emmanuel Macron is is maybe they're more similar than the two of them would necessarily uh, let on. They're both, I mean, show-offs, uh, I suppose we could say. You, you know, their egos are easily bruised. Uh, they lead countries... Uh, with a with a interest and obsession almost with with immigration that plays a big part in the politics uh, a, a keen uh, political interest in actually quite small industries like fishing uh, play a massive part in the politics if not the economics and then just this sort of love of imagery the love of the turn of phrase uh, rather than necessarily tackling some of the the real issues that need to be dealt with I think our countries were more or less twin countries because, in fact, we are very similar. And uh, as a diplomat, I never had better relations than with my British counterparts because we are thinking alike. Well, it's different now. And uh, it's not only, uh, well, about, well, of course, it is about uh, Emmanuel Macron and uh, Boris Johnson and their different personalities. I don't know if they're more alike that than you think, but anyway, uh, it's uh, it's not the only problem because it's uh, it's a problem also between the French and the British. Not all the French and the British, of course, and uh, but 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 you know, it, it's easy to resort to French bashing when there is a, a problem in uh, in the UK. Uh, we are a scapegoat. The EU as such is a scapegoat, but in the EU, we are the largest neighbor, even not the, the only neighbor of the UK. So there is a kind of obsession. And even if we are not responsible for something, and in particular in the tabloids, of course, I don't think it is exactly the same in uh, in France because we have many neighbors and we are criticizing all our neighbors almost equally. So we are not obsessed by the UK. But with all this problem, 
it's uh, you, you know the, the the question of the the, the fisheries it's the living of uh, those uh, fishermen who spend their lives uh, fishing in uh, uh, british waters but because it's small but small boats different boats of course uh, they, they they can't uh, uh, give uh, gps uh, information so that's difficult but they don't come from the mediterranean sea to uh, suddenly finch fish in your waters and other countries have obtained their license. The question, of course, of migration, it's a tragedy. And not only this time, it has been a tragedy for a long time because you have people coming from very dangerous country and they want to go to the UK. Uh, we have a lot of uh, asylum seekers and uh, they're granted asylum, but those who are in Calais desperately want to go to the UK because they have families there, because of the language, because it's easier to find employment also. But it, that's the problem. And it was a problem when I was ambassador too, but our uh, uh, your Home Secretary and uh, my um, uh, interior minister managed to find an agreement. And But, well, it, it doesn't stop things because this agreement, in fact, uh, led to the closing of the tunnel and the ports, but now people are going there from uh, the, the coast, which is uh, 150 kilometers long. So it's not resolved and it won't be that easy because it's a human problem, but it's also a political problem in our countries, in the UK, in France and in all Europe. Migration can be very toxic. Sylvia, just on this, this issue specifically of, of uh, immigration and the migrants crossing the channel, geographically, this is a, a French problem, isn't it? It, 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 it? France doesn't want more illegal migrants, asylum seekers, refugees in their country than they absolutely have to. And if some of them want to come to Britain, then it's not really in France's interest to stop them. And, and so as a result, Britain really needs to make friends with France and also work with them to stop those people trying to cross uh, to uh, Britain. Uh, and so to sort of find a solution in that, it actually involves the two countries working more closely together, but ultimately it's France who have to do the work. But it shouldn't be a French problem because it's the, the control of your own borders. There, that was this agreement in the 2K, and so that France would control the UK borders. And you know now, it's interesting because they are candidates to the presidential elections or are all asking that uh, we get rid of this uh, Le Touquet agreement. And so now, if uh, we want to find a solution, we have to work together on, uh, on that solution. And not sending back refugees. It's not acceptable, of course. It's not possible either because we are a transit country. We are not the first entry uh, country and that's Dublin rules which apply to uh, EU countries. It doesn't apply anymore to the UK but at that time the UK was very much attached to these uh, Dublin uh, rules. Peter Ricketts it's an, it's an irony that maybe not all Brexiteers would necessarily want to acknowledge but would it be easier to address this migration problem if Britain was still at the table in the EU? Um, well, I don't agree that we could solve it, Matt, because it's part of a much bigger problem. I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of uh, asylum seekers coming to Europe from um, Syria, Iraq, across the Mediterranean. And this is one part of it. So we'll be solved. We can uh, reduce it. We can mitigate it. 
by working with the French uh, and our EU partners. And you're right, it would have been much easier to do this as a member of the EU, as part of what's will be referred to, the Dublin Agreement, which did allow countries to return those who had failed asylum um, to, to, for example, from Britain to France, although not many were, in fact. So it is much more difficult outside. Yes, we are not part of the club, and that is symbolised by um, the meeting of European ministers in Calais without Priti Patel. Um, I think it was a mistake not to invite her, in fact. So getting back onto good, quiet, sensible, productive discussions with the French and the Belgians and others won't solve the problem, but it can reduce it. And it is a human tragedy, much more than it is a political problem. It's about saving the lives of very vulnerable people. One particularly depressing part of all this is that actually last week when we saw the terrible tragedy of 27 people dying in the Channel, drowning in the Channel, trying to reach Britain, it felt like that could have been a moment where people did come together, put aside their differences, try and find a solution to this. And that lasted all of about five minutes. Boris Johnson tweets his letter to Emmanuel Macron. Emmanuel Macron's government cancels... Uh, Pretty Patel's invite to uh, the weekend summit to try and address this problem. And actually, um, is it partly, Sylvie Berman, is it partly that, that this problem is insolvable? So the best that both sides can hope for is to just score some political points off of this by by seeking to blame the other side. Well, uh, it's a difficult problem to solve. And uh, as Peter said, it can't be solved because, uh, well, there, there are tragedies in all these countries. And so, but we can re- uh, reduce it. Yes, you're right. Uh, the, the prime minister and uh, our president decided to have a meeting. They had a phone call. And after this phone call, apparently, well, they said it was good and they will enhance their cooperation. And then afterwards, there was uh, this letter publicized in uh, in a tweet and uh, proposing some things which have been rejected already by France. So, and it didn't reflect the discussion the, they had the previous day. And so that is, uh, that is the problem. But we should be frank with everybody and in our countries too. We have to uh, accept uh, some of these people because they are real uh, asylum seekers. They are economic refugees, of course. But we know also that uh, there is a problem in our societies because they're not ready to accept a high level of uh, of refugees. And that's the case everywhere. So we shouldn't make pretense. It's a very easy subject and a very easy solution either. OK, let's turn our attention now to the future. If they were both still in post, Peter in Paris, Sylvie in London, what would their advice be to their governments back home? First, Peter Ricketts. I think my advice would be, first of all, to stop the blame game, stop the finger pointing and the public rhetoric on both sides. We saw in the British press last weekend a leak of an idea of a big new UK-French treaty, perhaps around our defence cooperation, which is, of course, very close and very important. I personally think it's much too early for that. I think things are too raw and too angry. And so I wouldn't favour um, coming to Paris with a an enormous package of of new ideas to to rebuild things, I would start slowly uh, and carefully with one or two areas where Britain and France really can get together uh, and make a difference in tackling one of the problems that world faces, you know, in in the defence area, in the energy area, on climate, um, in foreign policy, but some limited specific things where the countries can get back into the habit of working together 
And that means both sides stepping back from, from the current row. It also means the British accepting that you can't be global Britain if you've got a dysfunctional relationship with your closest European neighbours. So um, seeing the French as allies and partners, not as uh, people who it's convenient to um, blame when things are going wrong in the UK. I'd start small and build and hopefully, perhaps after the French election, when things have settled down a bit, and um, get back to something a bit more elaborate by way of resetting the relationship. Sylvie Berman, same question to you. If you were still France's ambassador in London, what advice would you be sending back to President Macron to try and make friends maybe with, with Boris Johnson and Britain? Well, I think it will take time, uh, like Peter said, and it's also very uh, difficult because of their uh, personalities, I think, and what they're standing for, meaning uh, Brexit, of course, in the UK, and uh, on the contrary, Europe in uh, uh, in, uh, in our country. So, as Peter said, probably small things, very pragmatic cooperation, and in, in any case, resume the cooperation on this uh, human tragedy, which is uh, migration. And after the meeting with uh, Europol, the EU Commission, and uh, Frontex and other countries, re-engage, of course, with the, with the UK and uh, do it uh, pragmatically. Defense was very important in the past. We have the Lancaster House Treaty. We will have to resume that because we are so close on, the, on those issues. But for the time being, it's impossible to take a, a big uh, uh, initiative or to have too big an ambition. I loved working with the UK and I loved being in London, so I regret the situation. Same question to you both. Who do you think is most likely between Boris Johnson and Emmanuel Macron? Who is actually more likely to hold out the olive branch of peace to the other? <laughs> Sylvie, do you want to go first? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's very, it's very difficult because the, the, the problem, you know, after this tragedy, of course, there was in a certain way an olive branch, but you said it lasted five minutes, maybe a little bit more than that, but the problem is deeper. And uh, of course, I think uh, uh, we will say we want to cooperate and uh, probably you will say you want to cooperate. And I've seen even Priti Patel saying uh, she wants to cooperate. And that cooperation has been very useful because it prevented some crossings and also it led to arrest. And so, uh, well, we have in any way, there's no other way uh, than cooperation, in particular on, uh, on this issue. What about you, Peter? Who do you think will blink first between Boris Johnson and Emmanuel Macron? Well, I'm a diplomat, Matt, like Sylvie, and I think the right answer is that the best kind of olive branch is one that, you know, when somebody reaches out, the other is ready to take it. So I think that the officials, the civil servants, the operational people have got to get together and work out some things which can then be agreed by the two leaders. So neither has to go cap in hand to the other capital. I do think it's important as well to understand in the UK that uh, Emmanuel Macron has many, many other priorities at the moment than Britain. He's in a tough election race. Uh, Britain does not figure high on his agenda. He doesn't get up and think about Britain first before his breakfast every morning. I think in a way France looms larger in this country. So I think we've got to um, just let a little time pass, perhaps let the election pass, and then arrange so both leaders can find that they've got something to share and can get back into talking again. How's that for being diplomatic? That's very diplomatic. It's an interesting point you make, though, Peter. Sylvia, I'm interested in this. Uh, some of the impression that we get, or certainly the, the, the 
commentary, maybe also from the uh, tabloids here in the UK, is that French politics is obsessed with Britain. The way to to score points, make political gains, is to to beat up les roast beef. Is that an inaccurate characterization of the role that British politics plays in the mind of Emmanuel Macron and in French politics more generally? Well, probably it's part of it, but not only. I think in any case, there would have been a row, even those problems of fisheries and, uh, and migrations. And uh, as migrations are concerned, when I was in the UK, there was a crisis too, because it was year 2015. So it was the highest number of migration. And our uh, interior minister managed to uh, to talk and uh, uh, to uh, to have a treaty, but there was a lot of uh, critics in our press and in the uh, in the British uh, press also. So it, it's not only about the election, but of course, uh, because of the elections, you, you have to uh, take care of the fishermen and uh, and so on. That's obvious. But anyway, I think he would have reacted because he would have said that. Uh, the treaty hasn't been, uh, or the agreement hasn't been implemented. Well, yeah, and I, I suppose there's, there's an element of maybe better the devil you know with Emmanuel Macron. He's facing re-election in the French presidential elections next year. And our old friend Michel Barnier, the, the former uh, EU Brexit negotiator, who most people in Britain will have heard of, he's seen as the... What the most likely, most practical, mainstream uh, alternative to uh, Emmanuel Macron? So um, it might be that Boris Johnson would stick, would rather stick with Macron than go toe to toe with uh, Barnier again. Um, I just, I'm just quite interested in because you were both uh, ambassadors at the same time. Peter, Peter Ricketts, you were the uh, Britain's ambassador in Paris from 2012 to 2016. Sylvie Berman was France's ambassador to London from 2014 to 2017. I'm just quite interested, to what extent do you overlap? Do you have interactions with each other during that uh, period? I'll start with you, first of all, Peter Ricketts. Yes, I think that the two ambassadors um, are always going to be in touch with each other. We'll see each other frequently. Every time there are senior ministerial meetings one way or the other, they'll be together. Um, I was often in touch with Sylvia while we were both in, in embassies um, and predecessors as well. So, and, and that can help. That's one of the shock absorbers in the relationship when things are being difficult. I was indeed uh, on the other end, um, as it were, during that migrant crisis in 2015 in the run up to the British general election, as it happened. Very difficult for both sides. And the two interior ministers, Theresa May and Bernard Cazeneuve, I think both stood up to a lot of domestic pressure for easy, short-term, headline-grabbing solutions and worked to um, mitigate the problem. And now every time people go to France on a Eurostar, you'll see a lot of barbed wire around the Eurotunnel terminal. Uh, You'll see a lot of security precautions around the port. All that was done in 2015. So, yes, the two ambassadors are there to shock absorb, to brainstorm, to come up with ideas, to encourage their two governments to talk. Um, and that's important at, at difficult times. I think the worst time probably was not a problem between Britain and France, but was the awful Stade de France Bataclan terrorist attacks in Paris where 130 people were killed, including some British people. And that was a very bad moment, but it was a moment of solidarity uh, and standing together between Britain and France. And that's what we need to get back to. Does that all ring true for you, Sylvie Berman? 
Yes, and besides, we've known each other for a longer time because we served in Brussels also. Uh, Indeed, we did. <laughs> so it made it easier also. But anyway, it's the same with uh, others. And uh, of course, we have to communicate. I think uh, the word shock uh, absorber is a very um, is a very good thing. I think uh, ambassadors should keep the dialogue and talk to everyone in the country when uh, there is a crisis uh, between our leaders and continue the, the job on uh, cultural uh, issues, on economic issues, and, and so on. Because we shouldn't be part of the of the quarrel. That's all we've got time for on today's episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And you can listen via the Times Radio app. Catch me Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, live on Times Radio. And if you want to come on and play the hugely popular quiz, can you get to number 10? Email me your details, matt.chorley at times.radio. And we'll get you on very soon. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.